Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode in English of War Diplomacy. This is a podcast where we talk about international relations and geopolitics. And I guess that it would be Antonio Guterres' favorite podcast, the United Nations Secretary General. And my name is Fabio, and I would love to introduce our new host of the of the series. So first of all, Aramis from Austria. How are you, Aramis? Oh, fine, thanks. Really excited for the first episode today. Absolutely. And Christian. Hey, everyone. Christian Kelly, how are you? No, I'm great. It's a pleasure being here. Really looking forward to contributing to this podcast. So please, Armis, tell us a bit about yourself. What do you do? Where do you study? I was born and raised in Vienna, which is the capital of the little middle European country, Austria. And I'm about to finish my bachelor degree in political science. I started studying it in 2018. Within my degree, I've been mainly focusing on international politics and the post-Soviet region. And apart from that, really into social media, I worked for a couple of companies and political parties. Currently, I'm working in the marketing section for a company that consults other companies in terms of how they can make a transition to renewable energies. And I really like this connection between social media, international politics, and the post-Soviet region. So this is kind of the main focus I um, want to focus on in the future. Apart from that, as an Austrian, also know a lot about the German-speaking region. And yeah, I think that that's are the most important aspects. All right. So I have been born and raised in Oslo, the capital of Norway, in the high north of uh, of Europe and the entire world, really. So I'm half Norwegian, half from Uruguay, grown up with uh, several trips to Uruguay and Argentina, where I have family as well. So that's why I don't have like a very particular Norwegian last name. I'm currently studying in Brussels at the University of Kent, uh, Brussels School of International Studies, uh, doing my master's degree there in international relations and international law. I've been working for almost, well, for one and a half year at the UN Global Compact here in Norway as a policy advisor, focusing mainly on international and development policy. So I've been doing several projects, connecting business with development projects and trying to establish new procedures for doing that in the Norwegian structure of development policy. And before that, I was interning at the Norwegian mission to the UN in New York. So, yeah. Lastly, my name is Fabio Almada. I was born in Mexico. However, I've lived in Spain for the past few years. I worked in Paris for a little while in the OECD. I was in the Center of Tax Policy and Administration. So interesting work, but really technical. I also worked a little bit in Spain. I um, did my internship in the Organization of American States while I study here in Brussels as well, where I met uh, Chris. And where I also met Aramis here in Brussels, really uh, a really international city, I have to say. And I'm really interested in, in developing economics. I like geopolitics and I would like to work maybe in those connections between the EU and Latin America. So for this first episode, hit me with your best shot 2022, <laughs> right? Because I think that everything bad could have happened in 2020 and 2021 happened. So I would say we could go around the world and just try to do a little bit of analysis of the main aspects and politics that will be really relevant in 2022. So what if we start from here, the EU, and you can take the lead, Chris? Yeah, I think that's a good starting point. And we have several developments that are going to be really determining the future of uh, European relations, both within and external. So coming up 
already early this year is the French elections, uh, which will be happening in April. And that is definitely going to put a mark on how internal relations of the EU are going to function forward, especially considering the stepping down of Chancellor Angela Merkel in Germany. So having France and Germany being the main powerhouses of the EU, uh, if that's a lot to say, very big and prominent leader in Merkel stepping down and now having a different government in Germany will impact on some level, at least, the functioning of the EU and then how France will be determining their future in their elections coming up. Absolutely. And, uh, and also armies, you, you are really close to, to Germany. So how do you feel about the new uh, direction of the government? Because we had a change, right? Yeah. So in Germany, the, the biggest party is um, not the biggest party anymore. The conservative CDU is not in the government. And Suggesting this point or looking at this point, you might think, okay, now that the German politics are going to change fundamentally, as there is a new chancellor from a new party. But I don't think that the situation will dramatically change. The, the current chancellor is also someone who got elected because he's not tending to lean in any, into any extreme position. So I think what we're going to see is that Germany is going to remain the stabilizer in Europe and um, will search for a constructive dialogue um, with the rest of the world. Okay, so talking about foreign policy of the EU, how, how do you guys think that the EU should put itself between the US and China, the two hegemons struggling for this geopolitical rivalry? Because from one side, it's true that the, the EU, like Macron is saying, it's looking for this as strategic autonomy, but I think that's a really difficult thing to actually uh, find, right? Like being in the middle, it's not as easy as, as you might think. And another interesting factor about the U.S.-China relations that I, I think it's, it's new in politics, it's the technological aspect and how 5G and telecommunications, they play a big role in politics. And I think that's something we have not seen in previous decades, but really interesting to see as well. I think it's a very, very natural transition here from, from internal uh, EU relations to uh, talking about especially what's going on in Hungary. And, and the functioning of the EU there, because as we know, Viktor Orban, Prime Minister of, of Hungary, has been cracking down on democracy in general uh, as a principle in Hungary for, for quite some time now. As we know, this uh, constellation of far-right movements in different parts of Europe and also transatlantic relations with the U.S. having both Donald Trump and also earlier this fall, we had Tucker Carlson from Fox News endorsing Viktor Orban in Hungary and now Donald Trump. The uh, illiberal democratic uh, principles that Viktor Orban has been promoting since his speech in July 2014 about having more of a, an assertive state uh, cracking down on civil society, looking to have more of a what what he calls like an Eastern approach to to democracy, and uh, which is maybe particular. not particular. Maybe not. Yeah, <laughs> it is particular, and 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 having a weak opposition to to the government. That being the way forward, I don't think the EU will agree with it. But as we have seen for for quite some time after having this you know, out in the open in, in Hungary, the EU still hasn't cracked down on it. And this is going to change now with the European Court of Justice going to land a decision early this year to make a decision on if the union has authority to make its funds to member states, which 
Hungary is receiving a lot of funds from the EU, being considered as more of a developing country within the Union. And so having the core values of the EU being kind of guidelines uh, that has to be followed to be deserving of the, the economic assistance will will be decided upon. And so if that is decided upon, that means that a lot of funds will be blocked. And that connects a lot also that in this year, we'll see a lot of next generation funds start arriving to European economies to stimulate them. So that's also uh, like the, you, you get the carrot and the stick. So blocking those funds, uh, well, it did work in Poland a little bit with that court's decision last uh, last year. And yeah, that'll be interesting to see how the EU leadership manages to deal with these illiberal democratic states, right? It will be it will be interesting. And, and I don't think that having Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson as the proponents of this <laughs> new model is no. maybe not the best stamp of approval for, for a state within the union. So I, I think it's a wise decision to maybe take a new new round of, uh, of considerations on how to approach this. Now that we're talking about the state, so how do you guys see this uh, Biden's first year in office? It's been challenging for him. You know, with the Biden administration, both like domestically and in foreign policy have been struggling for quite a bit. We we haven't seen internationally a very fundamental change in U.S. foreign policy. They have been going mostly their own way without consulting with allies. We've seen this with both the Afghanistan exit, and that has been a big hit to to the U.S. international credibility. And the aftermath of that is still ongoing and horrible what is going on in Afghanistan these days and will be happening throughout the winter and unfortunately and what which is very sad is that we we still don't know how how hard this will affect the state seeing how the US kind of swooped in and snatched one of the huge military deals that France an ally had with Australia with the AUKUS deal, which which turned out from from being a thirty seven billion dollar deal with a French company building submarines and Australia, which suddenly, without notice, the U.S. and the U.K. had a a new deal with Australia, which wasn't communicated to to the French government only right before the press statement on this deal being signed between the countries. It's undermining the U.S. credibility. It's not something that goes unnoticed within allied states between the U.S. and other NATO countries and uh, others because this kind of behavior, it's not appreciated. And I even have another example. There are many talks in the Russian-Ukrainian crisis. One, the most important talking format will be the one between Russia and the U.S., and even in that case, the U.S. could have brought in the European Union. But again, they decided that they want to host those talks on a bilateral basis. So another disappointment here um, for many Europeans. Yeah, the EU being left out of those talks, it's not a good sign for cooperation going forward. If we take the domestic part of the U.S. now, it's not going great either for, for Biden. His 
main campaign point and the Build Back Better deal, which is this huge infrastructure and climate bill. It's not progressing through the Senate as we speak. So it's a blow to to the Biden presidency. And now with midterms coming up this year, they're going to be struggling because without having this bill passed, which has been one of the main points of uh, their campaign, they don't have that much to show for it. And with an already very narrow majority in the House of Representatives, which is at 50 to 48, for the Democrats, it's it's going to be impossible going forward if the midterms turn out with very high majority for the Republicans, which is looking likely without the public support for the Biden presidency, which is at very low point right now. It's going to be interesting to see both domestically and internationally what happens with the U.S. administration. Armies, do you see a 2024 Trump candidacy? Well, within the Republican Party, he is still the uh, most popular candidate. Um, on the second place, there's right now, I think, another interesting candidate, uh, Mike Pence. He still propagates himself as, as a kind of a right-wing politician um, who is uh, similar to Trump, but he's making specific borders to, to Trump rhetoric and the way he acts, and he establishes himself as a, as a different candidate. So... Maybe if things develop in a certain way, um, Mike Pence or another Republican candidate um, even might be might become stronger than Trump, and then the situation would become really interesting. But as of right now, Trump is really much so, ahead in the yeah. polls, and, and the Republicans are really very much behind him. I think 2021 wasn't a good year for him. He didn't make a lot of progress, but still, he has this massive support base. And he has this huge amount of control in the Republican Party. He had some losses because and there were some minor elections in the U.S. where he supported some candidates and those candidates lost. But overall, he still has a huge grip of power over the party. So I think he will be the next presidential candidate. And I even think that this is a good thing for the Democrats because many people in the U.S. still defy Trump and they are highly motivated that he will not become president and this will play in the hands of the Democrats. Well, uh, jumping a little bit now down the south of, of the American continent, talking about my region of origin, Latin America, I think uh, interesting things to look forward in this year are elections in Brazil and Colombia. And the one thing that I ask myself, is this leftist tide going to turn Brazil and Colombia towards the left as well? Because we saw in Chile, we saw in Peru, we've seen in, in Argentina, Mexico and Honduras in these past years, this uh, really strong leftist uh, wave getting into this, this country. So that will be an interesting couple of elections to have in mind. Another thing that I wanted to mention is populism and authoritarianism, especially in El, El Salvador with uh, Bukele, Nayib Bukele, and the same in Nicaragua with Ortega. Uh, really autocratic uh, leaders taking the direction of Central America in a really particular way. And well, of course, we'll also have to talk about Venezuela in a couple, in, in some episodes, as uh, the situation is still it's the same, uh, humanitarian and, and politically, socially, the country is devastated. And Nicolás Maduro and, and his regime will not let, let go of, of power. At least I don't think that it will anytime soon. So I think these are a couple interesting aspects to look forward in Latin America, which most of the time it's seen as a place that there's not a lot of geopolitics involved. But I, I think there is a lot. And lately we've seen, for example, how China has been more involved in the continent with a lot of investment in infrastructure and this idea, right, of the Belt and Road Initiative and, and trying to get close with governments with the no, no, no questions asked policy. And I find that really interesting as well. One time I read about that the Chinese were thinking to build another canal in Nicaragua to have a, a little bit of a, com- a price competition with Panama. 
that was an interesting idea. I didn't. I don't think it went through. <laughs> but imagine if the Chinese started building another canal. <laughs> that would be. That would be. I wild. think this is one of the most stupidest projects I, I've seen in a while, in my opinion, <laughs> because. If you look at the at the Southern American map, or especially at this uh, specific region, it doesn't make sense to build a canal there. And because the the thing with the canal is that the more the, the longer it is, the more expensive it is, the longer it takes to build it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the Panama Canal is really built at a good place where you only have to build through a a, a small amount of land and um, to actually have this canal. But Nicaragua, this is just such a major, a big stripe of land where you have to build through this canal. It does not even work. The Chinese are saying they are not, it's not an official state project or they're not really behind it, but it's led by Chinese businesses. And anyway, it's not working. <laughs> Would have been interesting. Yeah, but yeah, in my opinion, it's a, it's a stupid project in every sense. We have to remember that the, the Soviet Union did, did this back, <laughs> back in the days with having a river turn upstream. Um, oh. Just for show, <laughs> so so having having you know geographical power in the sense that we can we can terraform or or you know affect the natural geographical state uh, of the world is uh, you know it's it's considerable you know because showing the power of turning the earth into our into our making uh, more than we already have no absolutely yeah. and then maybe if we jump back now to to North Africa and the Middle East, there's also really interesting things that, that happened in the past years, and it will continue to be like that. So the first topic within the me Middle East we're going to talk about is Afghanistan. And the headline you gave me in this context was Afghanistan, the next failed state. And when I read the headline, I thought, all right, Fabio, I think <laughs> Afghanistan is a failed state already, sadly. Okay. But yeah, I will get furtherly into this. But now look at the question of how will the situation in Afghanistan probably maybe develop over the course of the next year. I think it will even get worse as to the situation of right now. And it's already really bad because the existing wealth in Afghanistan existed um, to a significant amount due to the foreign aid from the West. And as we are all aware, this aid has been cut and it has been limited to humanitarian aid. So this kind of aid that works in the short term, this is food supply and stuff like that. We know that there has been a lot of attention to the Afghanistan case within the Western public, but I am expecting that it will decrease this attention to Afghanistan and thereby humanitarian aid will might even decrease as well. Certainly don't think that it will increase. This is a substantial loss for Afghanistan. And on the other hand, China might fill this gap, but I don't think so on the other hand, because yet they have not shown that they are willing to invest so much money into Afghanistan. And there might be strategic thoughts behind this. I mean, China saw that U.S. invested massive amounts of money into Afghanistan, and it didn't really work out for them. We know that the natural resources in Afghanistan are existing. There is a lot to be exploited in theory. But in practice, we're seeing that it's really hard to get access to those resources. And even when the U.S. was willing to give China the security to exploit those resources, China said, no, it's, it's not worth it. It's financially too risky. The last aspect I want to name here is that you have the, the Afghanistan leadership, the Taliban. From those guys, we cannot really expect that they're able to economically implement significant reforms to bring the country back forward. 
as there are just not as there is just not enough expertise there. So I I just don't see any aspect here, and that makes me positive in this case, and that makes me say, okay, Afghanistan is developing at least in this point in a good direction. Every everything I look at points direction of of a failed state, if it not already is a failed state. One thing it's to take down a government, and it's a completely other thing to govern. But one thing that came to my mind that I'd like to ask you, Chris, because you worked in these international forums in New York and and around uh, in in Norway as well. So these institutions will they accept and and recognize uh, the Taliban government? You know that is actually a highly relevant question uh, because this week actually. The Taliban government officials were in my home city of Oslo in Norway, uh, taken there by a private jet by the Norwegian government, which was not uh, a very taken lightly by, by critics uh, such mm. as the opposition party, the progressive party, and also Afghan diaspora in Norway. Though the criticism has been met by the foreign ministry as the only option to get the Taliban officials to Norway safely, uh, it's still a contested issue. But even so, it still led to over 20 meetings during the week with uh, different civil society uh, organizations in Norway, as well as representatives from the UK and the US, and with Norway also now being a member of the Security Council in the UN, that, that makes three of the UN Security Council there to meet with uh, the Taliban government, as well as the European Union Special Envoy to Afghanistan. The talks led to an, an opening for future talks, even though the Norwegian government is now saying that the ball is in the court of Taliban to take mm -hmm. it further. But it is mostly just to limit the humanitarian situation in the country, namely to open sources of having having financial flows to the country without going by the Taliban is, is one of the issues that have been discussed, as well as uh, demands for the Taliban to open schools for girls, also to set in place technical solutions to make humanitarian aid, health and schools available. But as as said, all this money will be channeled, uh, channeled uh, via the World Bank Fund and the UN system. But it it has been uh, a source for a dialogue between between Western uh, organizations and the Taliban, and it's a first. And and it's clear that there is an opening for continued dialogue. And if they are met, we might be going towards uh, more explicit recognition uh, okay. uh, besides the now implicit recognition. But as said by the Norwegian government, that is a very long road and the Taliban has a lot to prove. So we'll see how this goes on forward. And Aramis, uh, what about other other key elements in, in North Africa, Middle East region? Uh, yeah, so another interesting aspect we've seen over the past few months and year, few years is are the Arab-Israeli relations, because as we are all aware, and due to the establishment of the Israeli statehood, there was a lot of conflict in the in this region. And ties used to be really bad. There used to be no diplomatic ties at all. This was a lot of due to pan-Arabism and pan-Islamism. So the Islamic states were in solidarity to each other. And they said, okay, Israelis are not treating the Palestinians well. Uh, and therefore, we shouldn't have good relations or any relations at all with Israel. And if you look at public sentiments in 
North Africa or in the Middle East, you see that there is still a lot of mistrust against Israel. Um, people were asked whether they wanted to have diplomatic ties with Israel in North African Arab nations. And in any country, there was an overwhelming majority towards not having any ties at all with Israel. But ignoring the public sentiment, many Arab nations were now establishing ties with Israel. There were diplomatic communications established, economic projects had started, and air travel restrictions were lifted. So early on, you couldn't even fly between Israel and Riyadh, for example, and um, this has changed. The question is, why did that happen in the first place? So this whole phenomenon I used to talk about earlier, this pan-Arabism, pan-Islamism is in decline. That is one way to explain it. Another is that Iran is a common enemy for both countries. So they might perceive Iran more dangerous than themselves. So they're saying, okay, we're working together to fight the real enemy Iran. And most of these nations share good relations with the US. So if we're looking at this from a broader context, I think what we might say here is that the lines of this of those of these regional differences are beginning to align to those world powers we're seeing here so iran is backed by china and israel and many arab states are backed by the us so they are beginning to align themselves by those lines and there are many regional dynamics at play so i do not want to minimize those those dynamics and say okay it's all just because of the us china relations but i think there is an an interesting aspect, especially if we look at it from a geopolitical point of view. What could make um, those relations at least a little better is the Iran nuclear deal framework, which we know was suspended by President Trump. But um, Biden announced plans and there are currently negotiation talks to re-implement this framework. Back then, when this framework was implemented in the first place a couple of years ago, we saw that Iran was developing a little towards the West and was opening up its economy. So this might be one hopeful point we're having here. But on the other hand, again, I, I want to point to the world powers. Iran support is supported by China. China is also not entirely clear in this region with their politics because they are supporting Arab nations as well. But overall, I think those relations are going to, to get even worse. But it's hard to make any, any concrete prediction here. What um, a major event is in the region, of course, is the continuing war in Yemen. And th there is a civil war that has erupted in 2014. And yeah, it's just a typical proxy war Iran and Saudi Arabia like to have with each other. So they're not engaging in direct fights, but they're engaging in fights that are um, in the region. So um, in Yemen, you have the government which is backed by Saudi Arabia and is internationally recognized. On the other hand, you have the Iranian-backed Houthi armed movement. And this is a war that has been going on for a long time now, and we still see no end in sight. And if we go a little bit more into sub-Saharan Africa, there's also conflict over there. The What has been called a civil war in Ethiopia for some time now already. It's uh, it's uh, horrible. Already in, in November, it was predicted by the World Food Program that uh, 9.4 million people across the northern Ethiopian region 
are requiring food aid now. And this is a consequence of uh, the uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed that has ordered a military offense against the government of the northern part of, of Ethiopia, the Tigray region, where you have the Tigray People Liberation Front, uh, which is a political group that has dominated in the region for almost 30 years. The offense against the group has been ongoing for a bit over a year now already. And it's turned to a very, very dramatic uh, situation in the region. And it's also spilling out into, into neighboring countries. This has impacted, of course, the, the global standing of Prime Minister Ahmed because he was receiving, you know, two, two years ago, no. he received the Nobel Peace Prize and now launching an offense against the uh, domestic threat, uh, as what he calls it. Not the most peaceful uh, behavior and also uh, has has turned the Nobel committee to to declare that he he should be you know stopping this offense it is it is a, a complicated issue uh, with fighters from Tigray almost being able to take control of of regions close to the capital Addis Ababa and that forced the the prime minister to declare a state of emergency and and also had a lot of foreigners flee the country that's not the, the only particular uh, situations that we have ongoing. We have had since, I, it's since June of 2020, there has been five coups oh, yeah. in Africa uh, or in sub-Saharan Africa. We, we've seen two in Mali. Uh, there's been in Sudan. Uh, there has been also in, in Guinea uh, and Chad. And these are violent coups, uh, military coups. Uh, opposition is crushed. It, it is it is very hard to have a functioning and uh, prosperous state during such a such a dramatic shift in in domestic relations. And one one other thing we haven't mentioned that much it's uh, vaccines. And Africa is the region that has had the less uh, vaccines. And well, uh, Omicron virus it, it was tested in South Africa, but it could have been developed in any other country in the region. Vaccination and COVID, right? Because that has really changed the way the world is set. <laughs> so those are interesting things to look forward as well. And uh, what about the the Russian post-Soviet space armies? Because you really are. You, it, this is your region of expertise. <laughs> Yeah, um, the first topic we will touch upon here are the Kazakhstan protests. And before I get into those protests in more detail, I wanted to give you some and our listeners some key facts about Kazakhstan, because you really don't hear about this country a lot in, in general. So Kazakhstan is a huge country south of Russia. In fact, it's as big as Western Europe. It's the ninth biggest country in the entire world. But nevertheless, it only has roughly not even 20 million inhabitants. So it's thinly populated. And um, Kazakhstan gained independence from the Soviet Union at the beginning of the 1990s when it dissolved. And after it gained independence, their communist era leader, Nursultan Nazarbayev, became the country's first president. And this dude has ruled the country up until 2019. And that's when Kasim Yomat Tukayev took over. These are the basic facts. One other aspect I want to touch upon are the natural resources in the country, because the country has major oil resources. It's one of the top oil producers in the world, right next to Qatar in the ranking. Nevertheless, the protests were about a spike in fuel prices. So people were not able to afford fuel 
So a pretty ironic thing in, in Kazakhstan. And, even, and another interesting aspect is that the people there use liquefied gas because it's cheaper. So yeah, all pretty ironic for, a, for such a major oil producing country. And people were um, angry about those spike in fuel prices. There used to be a cap on those prices and this cap was removed. Major protests erupted all over the country. Some peaceful, others violent. And especially the capital was pretty damaged. So you have approximately $200 million in damages. And if you consider that Kazakhstan is a quite poor country, that's um, really a lot. According to official sources, you have 44 deaths. About a thousand people reportedly been injured and 400 being treated in hospital. Now, what I have to say here is that those are really the official sources and you don't have a lot of so other sources at this point because the internet has been shut down. It's um, still shut down to this day, partly, sometimes it's back and major news st stations were shut down as well. So it's, it's not so easy to get um, good coverage on the region and what's really going on there. What we can say is that the protests appear to have ended. There's one city where it is known that protests erupt on a more regular basis, where you might expect, where experts expect, okay, there might be coming some, some new protests in the future. But apart from that, it is expected that the situation has calmed and that the government has full control over the region and stabilized it. So one factor that is at play here is Russia. Russia deployed allegedly 2,500 soldiers to Kazakhstan and they were sent under the authority of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, CSTO. Now, why do I mention this detail? I think it's really interesting because this treaty organization gives Russia the opportunity to deploy those troops and essentially to maintain the grip within the nations because within other post-Soviet nations, Many post-Soviet nations are a member of this um, treaty organization. And as soon as there might be a revolution there or a coup, as it's not so rare in, in the post-Soviet region, Russia can, through this treaty, deploy the troops and stabilize things there, aka maintain the current leader who is hopefully pro-Russian, in, in at least in Put as Putin hopes. Apart from that, I think more even more importantly, the Kazakh authorities have shown that they can crack down the protests through shutting down the internet, um, through harsh response to protests. They were really apparently able to calm the situation down efficiently. Kazakhstan is not the only place where we have seen Russian troops recently, right? And I would say that the situation in, in the border with Ukraine is getting really intense lately. We've seen the Russian troops massing over there. And we had the NATO-Russia summit, and it seems like the troops are not going back. The claims that Putin wants to establish that might be too high to ask. So how do you see the situation in, in Ukraine? Well, well, <laughs> that's that's the $1 million question. Um, so you have this military buildup from Russia. You have 100,000 troops approximately surrounding three sides of Ukraine. And you had many talks hosted, hosted between the West and Russia. And some talks will come up in the future. But what we're seeing right now is that Russia is putting huge demands on the table. And if the West wants to remain its credibility, it cannot accept those claims. On the other hand, Russia is really making a lot of pressure. They're saying um, they want a quick response. They want statements. They want concrete answers. What some experts are suggesting is that Russia does not want these talks to be successful. The West does not seem to be giving in. They seem that it seems like those talks will not be successful. 
And it's really interesting how it will go on from this point, because Putin now has two options and both don't look good to me, at least. So his first choice is to leave those talks without any major success and withdraw his, the troops from Ukraine and just pretend nothing's happened. But in this case, he would lose credibility. He can also choose another option, which is to invade parts of Ukraine. How much of Ukraine? I don't know. And this would also not be much delicate for Putin because he would face harsh sanctions by the West. His economy would deeply suffer under those sanctions. And it even could resist in resistance within those annexed parts. But also, if we look at it from a midterm perspective, there might be even some protests in Russia as well, because the economic situation in Russia is already pretty bad. I mean, if you look at the life expectancy, if I recall correctly, it's 60. So it's to, to just to think of that there are even more harsh economic sanctions on its way. I mean, it would be horrible for the population. And so I, it's really hard for me to predict anything here because both options look really grim. And I don't see any rational thinking president implementing one of them, but I don't see any other choice for Putin. I mean, okay, the first choice is something a rational thinking president might do, but for Putin, this is a, a thing that is upon like concrete political economic interests. This is a historic aspect. This is about his legacy. This is about his credibility within the country. So I think he really got himself into a complicated and unfortunate situation, maybe intentionally. Maybe he has some aspect in mind that I don't have in mind yet or other experts haven't heard of yet. But yeah, I'm really interested how the situation will play out. And we'll touch on the last region that we all discussed in this episode. It's, of course, uh, the, the East uh, South South Asia uh, region. And I think that, uh, of course, like the one that we've uh, discussed uh, so many times before is the U.S.-China rivalry. I think that's going to be the most important uh, decisive dynamic that will tell how global politics will develop in these coming years. And special places of tension will be Taiwan, of course, and the South China Sea. So I think those will be really tense uh, places and, and we have to have an eye on that. Uh, the situation in Myanmar is also quite interesting with their uh, coup d'etat last year. And the old president, Suyuki, is facing charges. So the situation in Myanmar is also uh, getting getting more complicated. And it would be amazing if we could have an episode on Myanmar in the coming future. And lastly, I think another topic that we have not really seen in the last months, it's been really quiet, but I think we still had to mention, it's the India-Pakistan relations, and especially regarding Kashmir. There was some fighting, some, some soldiers were killed in 2020. And uh, it's been a, bit, a little bit more calm in the past year or so. But I think it's really interesting to to address as well. And well, of course, finally, I think that climate in, in 2022, 2023 and until forever will be a, a huge issue. We just had the COP26 summit, climate summit, which uh, many say was just a big failure. Uh, not a lot of big concessions were made. And of course, Russia and China were not in the table. So you cannot have proper climate policy that, that regards the whole, the whole globe. If these two huge uh, em emission setters, uh, whatever, uh, are not in the table discussing these issues as well. So I think that's it. And of course, COVID. COVID and new variants will be a, a huge thing. The vaccination rates uh, around the world and, and hesitancy to get vaccinated. I think that Europe will probably get back on track in a couple of times. We have to see how the Omicron wave develops but to be honest uh, i don't know if you guys feel the same but i think that the wave it's uh, the, the hardest uh, part of the wave 
has uh, passed or maybe it's still getting that plateau. But I think maybe as we get closer to the spring, things will be a little bit better, at least here in Europe and in each region of the world. Well, that depends a lot on the vaccination rates and way too many different factors. So, all right, guys, we went around the world uh, in 80 days, <laughs> in, in an hour. We touched really interesting topics, and I'm sure that we would like to go more into depth in, in episodes in the coming future. And as it's a tradition here in Warrior Diplomacy, we recommend books, series, movies, uh, it could be anything regarding each uh, the topics that we discuss. And well, of course, today we talked about pretty much all of the regions in the world. So Armis, do you have any recommendation for our listeners? Yeah, so for my first recommendation, I have to um, point at my favorite book called Why Nations Fail by Atsimoglu and Robinson. I'm sure some of our listeners will know this book already. It's a beautiful book explaining why nations on earth are sometimes fail or don't and um, economically prosper or not, and explains it really well with historic examples if you want to understand the cores of international politics, I think this is just a fundamental read um, that will help you understand many dynamics. That that's a great book, Arbis. I've, I've read that. I've read it before for university and for my own pleasure, and it's such a beautiful book. I really liked it. A really great book. In my case, I would like to recommend *The Power of Geography*. So this is the sequel of the best-selling uh, book by Tim Marshall, *Prisoners of Geography*. And uh, it's really similar to the episode that we just had, because in this book, he travels to 10 regions and tries to explain how and why global politics are going to be shaped in these coming years. He talks about Australia, talks about Iran, Saudi Arabia, the UK. So it's a really good book. I recommend it. And of course, if you have not read Prisoners of Geography, also try to give it a, a shot. Yeah, so my recommendation is Moneyland by Oliver Bolo. It is dealing with illicit financial flows on the global scale done by corrupt officials and elites in different countries and how it is basically robbing populations of money that could have gone to sustainable development. And uh, it's a very interesting book. And I know that we are going to do an episode on illicit financial flows, which I'm really excited to, to be doing since I have had some experience working with that, both as a trainee and uh, working as a policy advisor at the UN Global Compact. So, yeah. All right. Well, guys, thank you very much for being here. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, really, to have you here finally in War Diplomacy. We'll see your guests and, and listeners in the next episode. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thanks. Bye-bye. See you next time.